Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Dr. Beth Fisher who is Professor of Clinical Physical Therapy and Director of Neuroplasticity and the Imaging Laboratory in the Department of Biokinesiology and Physical Therapy, as well as the Department of Neurology at the University of Southern California. Welcome, Dr. Fisher. Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to have the opportunity to talk to Dr. Fisher about her 2019 John Maley lecture entitled Beyond Limits, Unmasking Potential Through Movement Discovery. Let me start by saying, Dr. Fisher, I really enjoyed your lecture and was so pleased that you were willing to publish it in PTJ so that you could reach a broader audience. And I really look forward to talking about it with you today. Thank you. It really was a culmination of, with respect to putting my clinical hat on, it was a culmination of everything I've ever thought as as a physical therapist. Well, let's start there, since you brought it up. In your lecture, you mentioned that early in your career, while you were a therapist at Rancho Los Amigos Hospital, you experienced that you continually hit endpoints with your patients, but quickly realized that these were urine endpoints and not necessarily those of the patient. Could you give our listeners some examples of what you mean by that? So uh, I started working on the stroke and brain injury services at Rancho at the time when Michael Mersnick was publishing cortical map changes with various manipulations, digit amputations and things, and essentially establishing at that time. So that was like 1985, 87, um, establishing that the brain was plastic and could be modified by experience. So my perspective was that I expected recovery with every patient that I treated. I was fully invested in that idea that my patients had the potential to recover. And in working with them, I would, I would see someone, um, you know, over and over again, frequently see someone post-stroke, for example, with a severely impaired paretic arm or, you know, not, no movement at all, all of a sudden open the hand. And I'm like, what is that? You know, what? That it's not a reflex, but a momentary connection that was made, and and I would think, how can I help this person access that more, you know, access that more consistently? It would just be, you know, observing as I was working with patients an ability to do something that you wouldn't see consistently, but was there, an ability to move in a way that was, you know pre-stroke, and I just felt like I I didn't know, I didn't have the resources, I didn't know how to help people access that. Is 
concept that you're describing, is it similar to what you um, talk about as potential masked by compensation? Is, is it related to what you've just, uh, the example you've just given us? Um, it, it, exact, it, yes. The idea with that is a, a little bit further is that people are making choices about how to move. They have, our patients have environmental goals, things they want to achieve, and they solve the problem using what works the best. And often it's not that they can't move differently, it's that they mm-hmm. don't move differently. And yeah. um, when I was a PhD student, I, I remember I took an undergraduate biomechanics course. And, you know, the instructor was drawing these link segment diagrams on the board. And she made this statement, when you change the geometry of the body segment, you change the forces acting on the system. And, you know, for me, uh, listening to that, it was like a choir of angels started singing. I was, I was just like, I can do that. I can, I can help people change the geometry of their body segments. And if that modifies how gravity, how, how the system is working, the forces are acting on the system, then movement can be altered. And I will often move in the way I see my patient move and I experience the same outcome. My knee locks back or something like that. And I think, you know, I'm not obligated for that, you know, to have my knee off back. It's it's a result of adopting a similar geometry and the forces acting on my system in a similar way and essentially moving the way they they're they're choosing. And if I experience the same outcome, then I think there's the option of moving differently. It's masked by the choice I'm making, Yeah, if that makes sense. <laughs> it, it does, and it's a theme that I think you nicely develop in your article and then you did in your lecture. And I want to talk a little bit more about at least my, um, my interpretation of, of what you're saying here. You talk a great deal in your lecture about movement discovery as the approach that we should be really focused on. And you contrast it with what you describe as a movement impairment perspective. Could you talk about the similarities and the differences between those two approaches? So when I think of impairments, I think of I don't have enough strength, I don't have enough mobility to perform the task in an ideal way, but if you think, if you have a kind of goal-oriented approach, it it allows you to go beyond impairments. I'm thinking about what is required to move in an ideal way. What what, what what's required? So I, I can think of multiple patients that I've seen with Parkinson's disease, for example, that simply cannot get out of the chair. Um, they just, you know, they generate a lot of momentum, they go back and forth, they eventually pull on something to to get themselves up. So 
it's common to look at that and think, well, they have Parkinson's disease, they're unable to move in certain ways, they have these certain impairments that limit their ability to perform that task. But if you're thinking about, well, what does it take to perform the task, it may be something as simple as they're just not getting their their weight forward, they're not getting their center of mass forward. Not that they can't do that because of the impairment, but they're just not doing that. Maybe because it's uh, a choice they're making because it's maybe scary to bring your weight forward, to just have your center of mass over your feet. Um, And so I don't ever watch people move and assume they it's almost like putting their diagnosis to the side a little bit and saying mm-hmm. i'm i'm not going to i'm not going to consider this list of impairments based on the diagnosis i'm going to look at what would be required to move easily and then honestly sometimes it's just asking someone to do that and then they can do it <laughs> um mm-hmm. and and what's what's amazing is when a patient has the experience to sort of discover how easy it is, how easy it is to get out of the chair, for example, if I shift my weight forward to my feet. So it, it, it's it's not being limited by the diagnosis and the list of impairments the diagnosis brings. It's thinking about what the movement requires and then really the patient discovering that they have the ability to perform it in an optimal way or an ideal way, in a easy, you know, it becomes easy. Tell me if I'm sure. correct, if I understand what you're saying, because I think I do. Okay. In your lecture, you talk about many components of our physical exam as physical therapists were developed as a means of differential diagnosis of the underlying impairments. That's what I think you were just talking about. And I don't hear you saying that's not important. I think I hear you saying that that's necessary, but it's not sufficient. To really help our patients, we need to go beyond that to then focus on improving movement dysfunction and find the best way to do that. Is that an accurate restatement of what you're saying, or am I missing it? No, that's exactly it. Exactly that. That I would just add to what we do. That, uh, and and I, I know I've said this repeatedly, but implicit choice is a big part of um, of what we're observing when we watch patients move. They're making certain choices, and when I say implicit, it's not like they're thinking. Uh, of the different options, and I'm going to choose this way. It's something that maybe someone you can't even intellectually participate with. They make the choice to get up using what works the best, and we're not factoring that in as much, that it may not be that, again, it may not be that they can't move differently. It's that they don't move differently. And many they times figured you, out a solution. You, you refer to those as compensatory solutions. Mm-hmm. Yes? Yeah, yes. Now, now, my 
question for you about those compensatory solutions that we as patients come up with. Are they always bad? There's, I think there's two aspects to that. And maybe one aspect is this is, this is where diagnosis matters, perhaps. I have so much respect for the brain and the potential for recovery that it's even hard to say that there's such a thing as a complete spinal cord injury where there's not going to be any recovery below the level of the lesion. But again, you know, coming from a diagnosis perspective, if the physical plant, for example, doesn't have the capacity, it's just not going to happen. There's no automatic activation of muscle with getting, you know, the center of mass over the base, for example. Um, So if I have a in the case of a complete spinal cord injury at T4, for example, where there's not going to be any activation of the, the trunk below that level or low extremities, then I have to think about a solution to moving around that doesn't require, you know, use of that. I have to think of, of a compensatory way of of moving. Yeah. I have to utilize my, you know, I have to keep my center of mass back because I'm not, you know, I'm not going to transfer any weight forward to my feet. Um, I'm, I have to use my upper extremities and and push myself up and use momentum and things like that. So I think that there is a, a diagnosis aspect of it. I also think that there is a choice aspect to it. And I yeah. feel like my job, my my what I need to do as a physical therapist is I need to exhaust every option I know to give a patient the experience that they can move differently. And that's an important part of what I can do. Now I can't be there for the all the practice they're gonna need to do. So I I think of myself as needing to do two things. One, give them the experience that ah oh, Oh, I didn't know my leg could do that. I didn't know my arm could do that. And then I need to help them set up practice in a way that they can, you know, experience that over and over again. And hopefully it becomes a more automatic solution. Um, but if I've done that, if I've exhausted every way I know, and a patient says to me, you know, I, I just want to be able to get into my bathroom and I can do that. Uh, you know, with my cane and and uh, putting a lot of weight through that and sort of hopping over my leg. I mean, not that they're going to say that to you, but if they're doing that in a what I would call a compensatory way, but that's their choice, then I can support that. I mean, I I, I will support the patient's choice, but but I feel like it's my job to give them the experience. That makes really good sense. And I believe that's what you are talking about in your title when you talk about unmasking potential. Yeah, right. And where there isn't potential, then you go to compensatory solutions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and I think a big part of what I was saying is, and, and, you know, I've treated so many individuals uh, with stroke, and I would say there's been 
less than a handful over, you know, 40 years that really can't figure out a solution to a, a, some, you know, a problem that they or, or, you know, a movement they want to achieve. They want to get from point A to point B. They figure out how to do that. And I rarely have to be a part of coming up with that compensation. I mean, I'm trying to think yeah. if ever I've had to figure. They figure it out. They're yeah. they're good at it. And uh, it's um, it's not something that I feel like that's what I'm needed for. That's not, you know, like, you know, I mentioned in the, you know, holding on to somebody's gait belt while they hop over their limb and lean into their cane. That is not, does not require the the skill and expertise and knowledge that uh, a physical therapist has. That leads me to my next question, which really jumped out at me as someone who's done a lot of research on um, outcomes over my career. Mm -hmm. You you criticize uh, the focus on aggressively holding physical therapists accountable by having outcome-based measures of success. And an example that you use is a 10-meter walk test, which is, I would agree, frequently used as an outcome measure. Is your criticism one of having an outcomes-based approach, or is it a criticism of the outcomes we've chosen to focus on in that approach? Yeah, I I, I think it's the latter, the latter issue. It's the choice of outcome measures. You know, rather than you, a laundry list of completing a bunch of measures, it's really selecting, you know, patient-centered measure, measures. Yeah, you're you're not opposed to being held accountable. You're opposed or you question the choices that we're making and how we're being held accountable. Exactly. I mean, one hypothesis that, that, that people talk a lot about as far as why there's been so, so many negative rehabilitation trials, um, you know, multi-site, randomized, controlled trials, um, is that there there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to treatment, perhaps. So why would there be a one-size-fits-all approach to outcome selection? I actually think, for example, the 10-meter walk test, for example, you know, these are tests that can be done uh, in a compensatory way. It would be, it would be a, a reasonable thing for me to have my patient complete the 10-meter walk test, for example, in a compensatory way and be faster than completing it in a, in a let's say, more ideal, you know, uh, quote-unquote, normal gait pattern. They, they, you know, having that discussion with them, that they're actually slower as they're trying to learn and adopt a recovery or uh, ideal movement pattern is, I think that's an important discussion to have. And I think it's important that they know we recognize that. Um, you know what I'm saying? It's like I... I do. I, I do. I, I think, I, think I, I, I understand what you're saying. Now, the critic might argue, 
and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. The critic might argue if the patient's goal is to be able to walk 10 meters, why should we care as therapists if they do it in a compensatory way versus a, um, a, a, a purer way, um, for lack of a better term? Um, I Because of the potential for recovery. And I do believe that if you select a compensatory way and essentially that way doesn't require, um, you know, a challenge of the impaired system, then there's no recovery that's going to occur. Yeah. Um, and so... Yeah, I get it. I, I, oh. No, go ahead. Finish. Oh, I just think so. That's where I think it gets to be about the patient's choice, maybe more explicit choice. You know, like like I said, if if someone after if after exhausting every option of 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 giving the patient the experience that they could really do something differently, but they're going to have to work at it. It's not, you know, I said frequently in my talk, this is where I think therapy should begin, is is when there's the more difficult choice of you know moving down that recovery pathway um, and uh and maybe not all patients are are gonna you know want to make that choice yeah i I hear what you're saying. I think another way to think about it is if we focus too much on achieving a functional gain through compensatory solutions, we may be leading the patient into some secondary complications that um, we're not aware of in the beginning. And there, there may be developments down the line that uh, could be negative if we focus too much on compensatory solutions. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, yeah. I I kind of in that in that model with the arrows, you know, you yeah, have enough, that's what enough I'm thinking arrows, of. Yep. you have a model. Um I, I actually yeah. said that, but the compensation would then, you know, lead back to impairments through the secondary impairments. If I'm constantly keeping my weight shifted to one side, for example, then I'm gonna you know, then the potential to lose mobility to lose force production ability, all of that is just going to increase. Or if somebody constantly gets up from a chair and they get up with their, you know, again, their center of mass so far ahead of their base that they have to get something back quickly, and it's generally the knee, and they lock their knee back, and it's over time they get excessive mobility. They get actually hyperextension range that becomes hugely problematic. And, um, you know, because once you get that much joint laxity, it's really hard to control that. Um, Yeah, I think that's a really good example. Now, I will say as an outcomes person, if we take a more sophisticated approach to the outcomes that we measure, we could pick up those secondary impairments that might be emerging through a more compensatory versus a more movement discovery approach. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I find it quite compelling. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about um, movement analysis. You teach this at uh, USC, and um, could you talk a little bit about the approach and how you teach movement analysis to your DPT students? I think listeners would be interested. Yeah, so uh, uh, Dr. Powers, Chris Powers and I, you know, uh, we basically um, went to the faculty and said, look, we're we're saying, or the profession is saying, that this is an essential skill of a physical therapist, and yet we're, we're not really introducing this systematically. And, um, you know, I... I uh, I remember students, um, you know, and not introducing it early. I mean, it, it would be introduced um, looking at patients performing tasks would be introduced like in their fourth semester during the neuro semester. So a lot of the students associated movement analysis with with neuropathology. I, I don't have to worry about that unless I'm looking at it. A, you know, neurologically involved patient. Um, and so we wanted to move it full, you know, move it re- really early in their first semester. And, but I would hear students uh, in their, in their final semester say things like, well, you know, in, in, in maybe presenting a patient case, they would say, well, first I would do a gait analysis and then I would do a movement analysis. And I would think, well, aren't those like, the same, <laughs> and so right. um, it made me think about uh, they learn, you know, because of our association with Rancho, they learn gait, and, and Dr. Powers has been teaching uh, uh, Rancho Jacqueline Perry gait for, you know, forever at USC, and so we adopted essentially that same gait assessment in which you, you chunk a movement in phases and then there are certain objectives that are met within that phase and then critical events or the the measurable movement um, that uh, is necessary to meet the objective for the phase. So we essentially, we look at every task and we basically have, or we look at numbers of tasks. We give them um, examples of, uh, we, we use that as a model with numbers of different tasks, how you would break it into phases, identify the objectives that need to be met in that phase, and then the critical events associated with that. Um, so it's what Jim Gordon deviation approach. In other words, how does what I am observing deviate from what I expect to see? So there is definitely a an ideal strategy that I'm comparing everything I watch my patients do. I'm comparing their movement to that ideal. But rather than what I'm what I'm looking for are certain invariant features, like let's you know take the example again of, of moving from sitting to standing. There's certain things that everyone has to do in order to achieve standing in an ideal way. But there's other things that might be more free to vary. And I'm not going to focus on those things, but more those invariant features of of every task. Again, it's a very biomechanical approach. It's thinking, 
these are the, this is the geometry of the body segments I need to achieve this. And then how does that modify the forces acting on the system? And then you look at a patient performing it with a different geometry and they get a different outcome. Like, for example, their knee locks back when they come up to standing. Well, is it that they have weak quads? No. I mean, maybe not. <laughs> it's that they, uh, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're moving in a way that they're throwing themselves forward and their center of mass is so far in front of their base of support that they've got to get their knees back. It's, it's really, you know, so you change the geometry, you change the forces acting on the system, you change the movement. So it's definitely more of a, like I said, as Jim would refer to, a deviation approach and, and really, you know, biomechanical perspective. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Fisher, for taking the time today to talk about your lecture with me. I really enjoyed it. I want to <laughs> encourage our listeners if they haven't already, to take a look at your article in the May 2020 issue of PTJ. So thank you very much. Thank you.